0: Uh, John chapter 1, Gospel of John chapter 1, and we'll begin reading at verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Amen. Let's pray. Our glorious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to see the wonderful things in your law, and that by your Spirit you would help us to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. So weeks ago, as we began John's gospel, we began by asking questions: who is Jesus? And noting that that question is the most important question you can ever ask and answer. And so ultimately, that's why we've been given the Bible. It answers that question, who is Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth? Uh, this is the purpose of John's gospel in chapter 20 and verse 20. 31, he says, that's why he's written it, that we may know that Jesus is the Christ and uh, that he's the son of the living God and that believing in him, we might have life in his name. Well, it's also the purpose of John the Baptist's ministry. That's why he was sent. He was sent by God to be the forerunner of Jesus Christ, to identify who the Messiah is and would be. And so, as John engages in that ministry, that's what he does. Now, as we come to our text this morning, I remind you that previously, uh, John, the gospel writer, the apostle, he talks about this delegation that the Jews had sent to inquire as to what it was that John the Baptist was doing. And so they were of the Pharisees, they came and inquired and, Uh, really did not approve of his ministry. And they will keep coming back throughout the ministry of Jesus, as we'll see and have seen if you've read the Gospels. And so by the time we come to verse 29, this is the second day of this week that John the Apostle records for us concerning John the Baptist's ministry. And so by this time, by the time we get to verse 29, John the Baptist has already baptized Jesus. We learn this from the other three Gospels. And uh, Jesus has been in the wilderness 40 days. He's been tempted by the evil one and resisted him and overcome him. And so, in our text, suddenly Jesus appears, it would seem, out of nowhere, and John the Baptist turns to Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so, as we'll see, in verses 29 through 34, John the Baptist identifies Jesus with basically what amounts to four titles, or at least we could say in four different ways. So if you were to ask the question, who is Jesus, or if you were to be asked that question, how would you answer that today? Who is Jesus? How would you answer Well, John the Baptist, he helps us with that here. And so we'll answer that from his perspective. First of all, we see there in verse 29 that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And that is to say simply that Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of that Old Testament type, that shadow of the One who would come, a Lamb. Now there's much... Written as to whether John the Baptist, when he says this, uh, whether or not he's referring to the Passover lamb, the Paschal lamb of the Old Testament, or if he's referring to the lamb of the daily offerings and sacrifices, or if he's referring to the lamb of Isaiah 53, or if he's referring to the lamb that was the scapegoat in Leviticus, or if he's referring to the lamb or ram, in the thicket that came out of the bush when, at just the right time, uh, Abraham was supposed to uh, kill Isaac, his only son. And therefore, instead of Isaac dying, the lamb from the thicket would die. But for now, I just want you to look at verse 29. And notice that it says, Behold the lamb. And note that preposition. Of. God. And we'll come back to that at the end of our message this morning. So Jesus is the Lamb of God. Second, Jesus is the one sent by God. Uh, That's there in verse 30. Uh, It says, this is he of whom I said after me comes a man who is preferred before me for he was before me. And uh, John is, is saying, this is why I'm saying, behold, look at him. Look at him as the Lamb of God because this is the one I've been talking about. This is the one I've been preaching about to you in the wilderness. You know, John came preaching a baptism of repentance, prepare the way for the Lord. And so now the Lord, as prophesied in the Old Testament in Isaiah, also in Malachi and so forth, he's come down and he is here. And John says, if you look at it, after me comes a man. I just want to highlight that Jesus, the God-man, is both God and man. That He took upon Himself human flesh, a body with a nature like ours. And so let's note the humanity of Christ. In Luke 2, in verse 40, it says that Jesus, after He was born, grew in wisdom and, and in stature, that means that he acquired knowledge, just like we do. He did it better than us, I'm sure. And uh, he grew. His frame, his body grew just like ours do. Jesus became hungry. Jesus got thirsty. Jesus was tired. And Jesus, because he came and dwelt in this fallen world, he Experienced our sinless, though, our sinless emotions. And so at times Jesus got angry. You know, in John 2, we'll see that. There were people making a profit off the worship of God. Jesus was upset at that, righteously so. Jesus, when he was at the grave of Lazarus, shortest verse in the Bible, it says, Jesus wept. Jesus, Isaiah calls him the man of sorrows. And in Matthew 26, just before His crucifixion, we are told that Jesus became troubled. <clears throat> he was tempted without sin. He suffered. But now, since His death, burial, and resurrection and ascension, He is now seated at God's right hand, our great High Priest. And we'll talk about that more a little later as well. And so he says there in verse 30, this is he of whom I said after me, comes a man who is preferred before me. You know, John's already said this. It's already said this. Uh, John, the apostle, has already written this in chapter 1 earlier. And John is saying he, he ranks higher than me. Why? Because, he says, for he was before me. I remind you, John the Baptist was born roughly six months before Jesus was born. Jesus is the preexistent one. He is that word in John one one, that was with God in the beginning. It was through him that all things were made. And so eventually that word, verse 14, has told us, became flesh. He took upon himself human flesh. And... Uh, As he will go on to say himself, Jesus. In John 8, in verse 58, he said, Before Abraham was, I am. And again, this is part of the message of the Old Testament. Micah chapter 5, I'll read it to you. Verse 2, God says through his prophet, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are a little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one To be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. And so there is one who would emerge from Israel. He would come in the name of God. And at the same time, he is the one from everlasting. He's eternal. That's one of his names. Mighty God. The eternal one. Isaiah 9.6 tells us. And so, He is the one sent by God. He took upon human flesh. And this really will come out later in John 17. Right? Jesus' high priestly prayer. In John 17, there Jesus is in the garden before His crucifixion. He's praying to the Father. And in verse 5 He says, And now, O Father, glorify Me together with Yourself. So if Jesus is not God, He's basically asking the Father to help Him commit idolatry. No, Jesus is the second person of the Godhead. And here He prays that the Father would glorify Him together with the Father with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And so in John 17 and verse 8, He says, For I have given to them His disciples the words which you have given Me, And they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you. And they have believed that you sent me. And so Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the one sent by God. And then we see here in verses 31 through 33, Jesus is the one anointed by God. That's really what we see. What does the word Christ mean, by the way? You could say, well, that's the word that means Messiah. And you would be correct that Hebrew is the the word Messiah. And Christos is the Greek, the the word for Christ. It's not Jesus' last name. It's his office. And both of those mean anointed. The anointed one. And so that's really what John is getting at here. If you note uh, there in verse 31, he says, I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. What does John mean, John the Baptist, when he says, I did not know him, Jesus? Because they were related, right? Remember that? Elizabeth and Mary, they were related which means that John and Jesus were related. Well, some have said that John had never met Jesus. I suppose that could be possible. Um, It could be possible John the Baptist had never seen him, never come into contact with him. Uh, In Luke 180, it said that John the Baptist would grow, become strong in spirit, and uh, that he was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. Jesus would hang out predominantly in Nazareth until it was time for him to commence his earthly ministry. John was in the wilderness. Perhaps that's the case. He never set eyes on him or he forgot what he looked like or didn't know. There is also the possibility that John has something else in mind when he says there in verse 31, I did not know him. Um, It could mean that he only knew him as a man that he did not know that Jesus was the Messiah. And so it's, as one put it, John is saying, look, I saw him just as you saw him, a man. But now it's been revealed to me who he truly is. I think that's the sense because of the context and some of the things we read about later in in the Gospels. And when you think about Jesus and his appearance, Isaiah 53 and verse 2 says, when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. I get the impression that Jesus was an average man. But John tells us in his works there. Um, in verse 31 he says, therefore I came baptizing with water. He tells us um, as to why it is that he was sent to preach this baptism of repentance in part. It's not the only reason we find in Scripture. But he says here that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. John came baptizing because it would be at the time of this baptism of John that Jesus would be revealed as the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. One sent by God. And so John tells us that's why he came. To prepare the way, to give the knowledge of salvation to His people. And remember what happened at the baptism of Jesus? In Matthew 3, in verse 16, it says that Jesus came up from the water, the heavens opened, and He saw the Spirit descending upon Him as a dove. And then there's this voice coming down from heaven, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And so by divine revelation, God the Father, he says, the one who sent him, revealed to John that this Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the one for whom he was preparing the way. Let us not forget that. Again, we talked about this, that Christianity is a supernatural religion. It is the one true religion. And that it must be revealed. We not only have the revealed word of God, but the Holy Spirit must take the scales off of our eyes, unplug our ears, give us new hearts so that we might see, hear, and receive the good news about Jesus Christ. So this is John's testimony that he is the Messiah. This was all predicted in the Old Testament, by the way. In Isaiah 11.2, it says that the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. After His ascension, Jesus' apostles would testify to this Peter in Acts 10.38. says that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth With the Holy Spirit and with power. And went about doing good. Healing all those who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. That's one of the things signified here by the anointing of Jesus. Even the baptism of Jesus. And the dove coming upon him and resting and staying with him. God was with him. God's favor was upon him. And of course Jesus, John um, Rather, we find in the other Gospels, Jesus tells John, when John struggled with the baptism of Jesus, you know, Jesus, you don't need cleansing. What are we doing here? Jesus says, let it happen to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus had to be obedient. He was taking upon his offices of prophet, priest, and king, fulfilling that role. And his baptism was part of that. That's in Matthew 3, 15. So Jesus, John tells us, he's the lamb, he's the one um, sent by God, he's the one anointed by God, and then fourth here, he is the son of God. I mean, he says that. I'll continue reading in verse 32 again. It says, and John bore witness, saying, I saw the spirit descending like heaven from heaven like a dove and he remained upon him I did not know him but he who sent me to baptize with water stepped to me upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and then verse 34 and I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God so Jesus is the Son of God what does that mean? Does it mean that, that God had a baby with a woman, or maybe a female God? No, that's idolatry, that's blasphemy. We don't want to do that. We don't want to say that. What does it mean? Well, let's, let's think about this. In Luke 135, Mary, the Virgin Mary was, was with child. she's going to have a child, and she was concerned, and so the angel came and said to her this. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that the Holy One who is to be born of you will be called Son of God. Now it is true in the Bible. In Job, for instance, we find that the angels are referred to as the sons of God. In Luke 3:38, Adam is referred to as the son of God. In Exodus 4.22, Israel as a nation is referred to as the son of God. But we have to understand how this title connects with the office of Messiah. In Psalm 2, verse 7, for instance, it says, you are my son. That's the father speaking to Jesus. You are my son. Today I have begotten. Remember in John 1, we've seen that He's the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we say He's eternally begotten. Because He is eternal. In Matthew 26, beginning in verse 63, Jesus is asked, tell us, are you the Son of God? And because He did not deny it, they would accuse Him of blasphemy. Which means he claimed to be part of the Godhead. So this refers to his obedience. And it also refers to his eternal sonship. We've already seen this in chapter 1 and verse 14. And it says the word. The word that was with God. The word that was God. That has always been God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Also in Matthew um, Three I've already referred to this. The father looks down. He says, this is my beloved son. When Jesus in Matthew 28 gives the great commission to the church, he tells the church to go out and baptize those who believe. And he says, do that. Baptize them in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy Spirit. That's to put those three persons on par with, with the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then there's that great confession. In Matthew 16, verse 16, Jesus, He asks His disciples, who do men say that I am? Some say you're this. Elijah, some say you're this guy, whatever. And He turns and says, but who do you say that? Peter says, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. And so this means that Jesus is deity, that He is the Christ. And this is the whole point again of the Gospel of John. He tells us, you know, we we ought to make this the verse of the month. So let's do that. Help me to remember that. We need to memorize it. John 20, verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing you might have life in his name. And so Jesus was both God, he was man as well. Two natures, together in one person, not mixed, not confused. From now on, forevermore. And so he was God because he had to withstand the wrath and curse of God on the cross, he was man because he's our substitute. He's the Lamb without spot and blemish. And he had to obey the Father in our place. He had to bear the wrath of the Father that we could never, never bear ourselves. Nor could we bring any value to such a sacrifice because we are with spot and blemish because of our sins. So, I want to go back and focus on verse 29 where John says, Behold the Lamb of God. Who takes away the sin of the world. What does this mean? What is going on? Well, first of all, you note there in verse 29, John says, Behold. This is like saying, take out your three feet long, your three foot long highlighter, and highlight this. Pause, meditate upon it, think about it, see it. And so he he points to Jesus, this man who emerges from Nazareth. We know the God man. And he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. You see, this is what God has been talking about throughout the Old Testament. That theme of the Lamb. This is Him. Those were types. Those were shadows. Those were pictures. This is the real deal. This is Him. And so when men talk about, well, does John the Baptist mean this picture in the Old Testament? Is he the Paschal Lamb, the daily offering, the Day of Atonement offering, the one there with Isaac and Abraham, Isaiah? And I say yes. All. Think about Genesis 28, where God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his son. And in the Hebrew, it keeps saying His only son. That's the child of promise, right? Sacrifice. And right before Abraham kills his son with the knife, God halts him and He points him to this animal in the thicket, in the bush. And that animal takes the place of Isaac. He becomes the substitute for Isaac. And that animal dies so that Isaac may live. Do you see a picture there? A substitute offering. The substitutionary atonement. Then there's the Paschal, the Passover lamb in Exodus 12, where you have the last plague to come in Egypt. And uh, it's the death of the firstborn. And so God tells his people, This is take lamb, kill the lamb, take the blood, smear it on your doorpost, and when the angel of death comes, all of you will live. So those who are covered in the blood live the firstborn of Egypt, died. So they were covered. And of course, 1 Corinthians 5.17, the Bible tells us there, Christ is our Passover. He is the fulfillment of that type in that picture. And so because of Jesus and His substitutionary death, we get life. We get eternal life. And so he takes away the sins of those estranged from God. There was the burnt offering, for instance, in Leviticus chapter 1. And so there the, uh, the worshiper would come to God. And the worshiper, if he or she, I guess he, uh, could afford a lamb without spot, without blemish, that is what he was to offer. And that meant it was a true sacrifice and symbolically, it would mean that this offering would not have sin. No spot, no blemish. And so he took the lamb. And he cut it as the offering. He cut the throats and killed that animal. But before doing that, he would do something else. He would take his hand, lay his hand on the head of that animal. Then he would kill that animal. And so the animal died, not, not the one offering the animal. What's going on there? Well, first of all, you have this symbolic transferring of guilt from the offerer, from the sinner to the lamb. And only then would that lamb die. And his blood, of course, would be sprinkled on the altar. You see, Jesus as the lamb of God. This is the lamb that I haven't offered, nor have you offered, nor has any priest on earth offered, except the high priest who offered himself. This is the lamb of God. God has come down. He has sent His Lamb to go to the altar of Calvary for us. He's taken our sins, our guilt, placed them on the Lamb. And so He he makes the payment for our sins. He takes the penalty of our sins as our substitute. You know, in sports sometimes you commit a penalty, you have to go sit on the sidelines. Someone else comes out and plays for you, and they make the play for you. That's what Jesus has done. And as we sit on the sidelines... Penalized, it's impossible for us to make the play. We're dead, or you could say all of our limbs are broken. It was impossible. And so Jesus comes and he dies that we might live. Or you think about the scapegoat. You know, the priest, he would take that scapegoat, and uh, in the place of the people of God, he would lay his hands on that scapegoat again, the transfer of guilt to the animal. That animal was sent out into the wilderness. You would never see that animal again. And the symbolic action is that God's people's sins were placed on that animal and they go away forever. On the Day of Atonement, you want to talk about a bloody mess in Israel on the Day of Atonement? So many animals and so many lambs were killed. The gallons and gallons and gallons of blood made their way outside the temple through these little built canals finally into this brook Kidron so that it would turn blood red. As the writer of Hebrews tells us, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins, but the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ through His one offering sins have perfected forever those who come to Him. Hebrews chapter 1 gives a foretaste of that letter and that truth because the writer said this. Hebrews chapter 1 it talks about Christ there. In verse 3 it says, who being the brightness of His glory, the express image of His person, you see He's divine, and upholding all things by the word of His power when He had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The high priests in the Old Testament, they never sat down. They were always busy. We are told they stood before the Lord. Why? Because they always were killing and shedding blood. Why? Because the blood of those animals could never take away our sins. But Jesus Christ, John calls him the Lamb of God, comes, offers himself on Calvary's altar, and through that one death, he pays for our sins forever. Right before he died, he said what? It is finished. He ascended on high. And what did he do? He sat down by the majesty on high. He purged our sins. And so this means that because of our helplessness and our inability, God has taken the initiative of taking care of our sins. That because He loved us so much, as the to say, He sent His only begotten Son. As 1 John, the same apostle says in 1 John 4.10, and this is love, Not that we have loved God, but He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is satisfaction, the full payment for our sins. You say, why did Jesus do this? Because the Father sent Him, as we've seen, because the Son agreed with the Father that that's what He would do. Why did they agree to this? Because He loves you. He loves you. That's why He sent His Son as the Lamb to die for you. And so we see the Word's purpose in taking upon human flesh in John chapter 1. And so the result of this, if you look there at verse 29, it says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That word takes away means to lift up, to carry, and at times destroy. And so just as the scapegoat took upon the sins of God's people and carried them away, so too has the Lamb of God. In fact, Jesus took upon our sins. He died on the cross. He went to the grave. He rose from the dead and our sins lay buried in his tomb forever. And they're destroyed. The Bible says in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so has he removed our sins from us. Can you measure that? No. Do you understand it? I think you do. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so through His sonship and His sacrifice, by faith now, we become His sons and His daughters. As He's already told us in John chapter 1 and verse 12. And so this morning, As you behold the Lamb of God. Behold Him in the true sense. See Jesus for who He is. If you've never done it, call upon Him. Flee to Him. Turn from your sins. And He will take away your sins. Forever. He'll take away the power of sin over you. He'll take away... The guilt of your sin, the penalty of your sins, and one day when you go to be with glory, forever the presence of sin will be gone. If you're a Christian, you've already done this. Sometimes you struggle. You think, I've got that sin, or I did this again, and maybe I'm on God's bad list. You got it wrong. You know, an old writer said that the gospel begins with the triumphant indicative of what God has done. And that's not based on what we do or can do. God's taking the initiative. He loved us. The Bible says we love him because he first loved us. There's nothing we have done nor is there anything we can ever do to merit His love for us and therefore there is nothing we can do to make Him not love us. And so what do we do when we sin? We confess it. We go to Him. We go to the throne of grace. I mentioned that Jesus is our High Priest. He's not only God, He's man. He's been here. He's done that without sin. And so therefore we go to Him and we confess to Him. We plead with Him because He's at the throne of grace. And He hears our prayers. He's the one who has gone into the heavens before us, as Hebrews says. Jesus, the Son of God, and so we are told to hold fast our confession. Last, I want to end with Revelation chapter 5, because that's the Lamb chapter. We flee to Him in faith, and we're saved. We can receive assurance from this land, because he's paid for our sins in full, and then last, this should lead us to worship. If this doesn't lead you at all to praise God, to thank God, to worship God, I have to conclude you're dead in your sins and trespasses, or you're in sin and your heart's cold. In Revelation chapter five, there's the scene in heaven. John has this little little peep. Into heaven, and uh, there's this dilemma. Um, There's the scroll of salvation, and it's sealed. And the question is raised in verse two: Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? Verse three: And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. And so John tells us, verse four: So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open. And read the scroll. Verse 5. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seals. Its seven seals. And of course in verse 6 we're told about one who stood in the midst of the elders. There was a lamb who stood as though it had been slain. Having seven horns and seven eyes. Which are the seven spirits of God. He came. Verse 7, took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on it. Now, verse 8, when he had taken the scroll before living creatures, the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a heart, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us by your blood. Verse 10, and have made us kings and priests to our God. We shall reign on the earth. Verse 12, they're saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them. I heard saying blessing and honor and glory and power be to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And then the four living creatures said, Amen, and the 24 elders fell down and worshipped Him who lives forever and ever. Beloved, at the end of the day, we worship the living and true God because He has sent His only begotten Son, the One who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would stir our hearts, we pray that out of thanksgiving and love to the Lamb, that we would live for the Lamb, that you would motivate us, stir us to worship you in corporate worship, but also to worship you daily, before our family altars as it were, in secret as we go to this place and that place and serve You in our callings. We pray, Lord, we would be a joyful people, a thankful people, a light in the darkness. We pray in His name. Amen.